Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I've never been afraid of tackling taboo subjects and stigmatized issues on the Just Checking In pod and today's episode will be no different because we will be discussing the very emotionally charged and complex global geopolitical issue that is the Israel-Palestine conflict. I'll be doing this with two guests to provide both perspectives of the conflict and in this episode I'll be checking in with journalist Hamza Ali Shah to discuss the Palestinian side. Hamza is a British Palestinian himself and has written for outlets including Tribune magazine, Dazed, Byline Times, Novara Media and The New Arab. I came across Hamza through his article in Tribune called Palestinian Lives Behind Bars, which examines the plight, injustice and hardship of Palestinians imprisoned under the current Israeli government. In this episode we do a deep dive into this article and the mental health themes it explores a brief history of the Israel-Palestine conflict for you, the listener, and what hope he has for the future and peace. For industry issues, we discuss comparison culture, social class, as Hamza is from a working-class background himself, work-life balance, and the anxiety that Hamza experiences when he has to choose between whether to sacrifice his evening when a last-minute article pitch comes in, or turn it down when he does not know if he'll be given that opportunity again. For Hamza's mental health, we discuss the role that his Muslim faith has had on his life, mental resilience and anti-fragility, and the grief he experienced in losing his grandfather in 2017, who lived in the West Bank. Unfortunately, through sheer coincidence, we recorded this podcast just before the tragic events of the October 7th massacre by Hamas, so we did not cover it, and it felt inappropriate to comment on it at the time of the interview when there was little to zero knowledge of the events that were transpiring outside of the fact that Israel was under attack. I hope through both these episodes, starting with Hamza, that both voices in this conflict feel visible, amplified and listened to. And afterwards, you the listener have consumed both these episodes that you make up your own mind on this very nuanced issue. So this is how my check-in with Hamza Ali Shah went. Hamza, welcome to the Just Checking Pod, mate. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. Ever since I came across your article on Tribune, I've wanted you on the podcast and I've wanted to cover the very heated issue that is the Israel and Palestine conflict for a very long time. How are you, mate? How was your Eden Ramadan, first of all? Good, good, thanks. You spoke about coming on here. It's been a long time coming on a very timely topic, or a very sensitive topic, one that is never out of the news for long. So good to offer a perspective on that. Hopefully to your listeners, something, something different. Always willing to speak. Excellent, mate. I'm all about building bridges on the podcast and I hope to get an, uh, an Israeli guest at some point on or someone who can share the Israeli perspective. We've got absolutely tons to talk about and every time we've been having this conversation about the running order, I seem to add a little couple of questions. I'm like, nope, nope, don't put more questions in. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show, mate? Go for it. Born ready. Let's begin your podcast, mate, by talking about your wider journalism journey. So take me back to the beginning first. What inspired you to get into this field? 
writing and the journey to where you are today? So I started, I was studying in university, international politics, and then it got to the first and second year, and this is the part in which everybody's kind of trying to forge a path and trying to see, you know, what do they want to, you know, when they graduate, what type of jobs do they want, what the career that they want to advance. And for me, having studied, you know, I kept picking Middle Eastern modules, Middle Eastern politics, politics of the Middle East, it could be the war in Iraq, it could be anything. And my thing was always connecting the dots, what does X, Y and Z mean, how can it influence this and that. So around the second I started blogging, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm quite interested in less the reporting side of journalism and, you mm-hmm. know, the investigative side and more, okay, how can kind of the writing and then bringing things together. And then I realised, oh, I, I can merge the knowledge of international politics and like the international arena as an analyst or like a commentator. And so I did a few blogs here and there and it just went on from there. I thought, I quite enjoy this. I quite enjoy the buzz of, for example, short deadlines, quick turnover time seeing something instantly thinking okay now what does this mean how can I put this together what does this mean for you kind of you know the history before Mm -hmm. previous years and build up and then now we're in a particular situation what does it then mean how can I then analyze it and bring a perspective to it Mm -hmm. so that kind of was the root and the principle Mm. of all of it you wanted to do a master's which is the route that many aspiring journalists are kind of forced to take I guess such as the financial outlay you need to do for it However, you didn't get into the courses that you wanted. So how did that impact your career path initially? Because you are here today. Yeah, it was interesting. I'd, I'd done a few a few bursaries I applied for and they didn't let me in. It was the old adage of, you know, not enough experience. But then you need that experience to get in. And so <laughs> the age-old irony, yeah. Yeah, and I, was, it was quite, I remember when editor at The Guardian actually reached out personally, I think when I was doing a bursary, and they said, look, your work's quite good, you're blogging and stuff, but we're looking for an investigative journalist and you just don't right. have enough of that experience. And I said, I appreciate you reaching out. Like, they obviously won't name any names. And I said, you know, thanks a lot. And they said, you know, keep at it. You know, you will hopefully break into this. But it's just we can't offer you this at the time. And it was a lot of that going on. There was a lot of, you know, applying and thinking, okay, maybe I can get in. And then thinking, do I really want to do the Masters? Because I always, I see journalism a bit like engineering or whereas the experience in the field is perhaps more important than what you learn in an academic circle. Yes. So... And a degree's fine, and I thought a master's is fine to get there because I had an international politics degree. I thought a master's would be good in journalism, but I'd much rather get into a newsroom, rather yes. be on a news desk. I'd rather be there and seeing how it happens. On the ground, rather than exactly. in the room. Yeah, because yeah. no matter how much like a veteran in the field tells me, okay, this is how you do it, this is how you investigate, this is how you speak. You never know until you know. You have to yeah. try it. You have mm. to then see it and be like, okay, now mm. I understand. So it was ups and downs, and then I just got into full-time work, into like a research capacity. But I still kept wanting that, you know, I kept having nine, I was still writing, I was still, but none of it was paid, it wasn't for any major outlets, it wasn't like, I hadn't established myself, but it was still, you know, had my eye on that, really trying to establish myself as a writer. You then started to do some more freelance writing, so the good news was that you were good at it, the bad news was that it took a lot longer than you thought it would to gain traction, so how frustrating was that at the time? And, you know, like me, did you maybe lack a little bit of patience or what was the kind of thinking there? It was a tough one because I remember the first commission piece I had was, I think, end of 2020. So I think I must have been about 23 or 24. And there was journalists at the time who I'd been in contact with who were, you know, just finished university, graduates, 18, 19, 20, 21, or fresh into university. And I thought, you know, naturally the world, the world we live in, you, not necessarily competition, but you kind of see them as like, oh, OK, they've got a few years on me. And because I'd been writing for a while, so I knew I had the experience of, you know, Editors always told me you're very easy to edit. In a sense, there's no repetition. There's no like the, the ba- yeah, the, the basic. <laughs> Hopefully, one is, not a lot of me doing this edit. <laughs> Hopefully, the one which I didn't realize is just small things. Again, it goes back to what you learn in the industry is starting a paragraph with the twice. So the first paragraph is there, and the next one is there as well. There's small things like that, and they said we never had to do that for you. So I was like, okay, that's good. I wanted still to you know really break through, and like I said, I got the first paid commission piece, 
and I just kept plugging away, plugging away. It is very frustrating because sometimes you might send a pitch to an editor and they don't reply. Others might reply and say, we want it to be done like that. Happens a lot in podcasts, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the time. It's just it's just that rejection where you think, oh, did I do something wrong? Mm. Like, what's the reason? It's hard at the start, isn't it? You always take things personally. Regardless yeah. of people say, it's yeah. never personal, it's always business, but it's hard when you're not yeah. got the wisdom to fully understand that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And people might offer advice and be like, no, it's fine, you just got to stick at it. But it's just one of the things where the human instinct is to think, oh, why am I not getting mm. enough? Why has someone else got it? And I'm I tr- tell him, why always me? Yeah, basically. <laughs> and I, I tried not to think like that, but equally, the human instinct is to, whether to compare to others or to think, oh, what could I be doing? How can I be doing well? So that was, especially early on, it was like, that was some thoughts that mm. were emerging. After you got some momentum, you started writing for Tribune, which you still do today, and that is, or was, your main outlet. However, in this overcrowded, oversaturated world of journalism, you realised that you needed a USP to stand out from the rest of the herd. So how did you go about finding that and establishing through it? When I started, it was very much, let me just get commissioned. I just want to write and I'll, whatever they give me, I'll write about. So I, my very first one was about COVID and like the economic fallout. I've done one on policing. I've done one on London, inequality in London. And I realised whilst it's good, there were articles within those topics that were then going to other people. I'm not saying I had a God-given right, obviously. But I thought, oh, okay, so if, if they need a topic on, for example, one of the articles I wrote, neoliberal impact, COVID, etc., there's five people, six, seven, who might write that. They may come to me, they may not. But I need something where I can really stand out and be like... I'm the guy. Yeah, as soon as the topic happens, news is breaking out and editors at the desk thinking, Hamza. That's mm. how I thought of it. I need something to make me stand out. And the other thing is, I was honest with myself, I'm not an economist. I haven't got a qualification. So I can write broadly about political economy. But at the end of the day, when their interest rates go up, for example, on a Wednesday, they need like, what does this mean for? Or You're might, not the guy. <laughs> yeah, it might be a mini budget. It could be a budget which you feel like might introduce something. I can offer a quick snap reaction, but they need the gory details and I can't offer that. And I knew that to myself and I thought I need something where I'm well versed and I can really offer a perspective, a unique perspective and stand out. Let's talk about Israel and Palestine now, because before we dive into your brilliant article on Palestinian prisoners, we both know that Gaza and the West Bank's populations have a disproportionate number of young people, especially young men like yourself. Were you conscious of that when you were deciding to make this issue your niche or was it just your heritage that you decided on or maybe both? It's a combination of factors. It's it's also the age is interesting but it's also the older people where you look at the old generation who've grown up in a certain environment and then the younger people who haven't so you look at the Oslo generation where peace was on the table like there was a prospect of it it might not be conclusive there was a lot of flaws of Oslo but there was like the generation of like my father and like my grandfather who saw okay maybe there is an opportunity to negotiate and to you know extract from the Israelis and begin the quest for self-determination the younger generation they're the voiceless they don't have anything all they know is resistance and they've only seen destruction and death and I thought I've always thought like the Palestinian story is the wrong story. It's always told in a two sides of the conflict. And, you know, it's just, oh, it's just a religious conflict. Why don't they just agree? Why can't they just stop falling out? And there is obviously a different dynamic to it. I've always thought that it's underrepresented. It's not told from the right lens. And I've always wanted to try and break that myself and at least contribute to it to begin changing perceptions or at least informing mm. people so they have a different perspective. Mm. During the bombardment of Gaza in May 2021, so two years ago now, you were asked to write a general article about it to give the readers an insight into what was going on. So why was that piece key for your career in giving you the springboard to write and do more? And just give the listeners a bit of context about the bombardment as well. Yeah, so this was, I believe, following on from the, the house demolitions in East Jerusalem, which were documented on social media. Again, we'll go back to this a bit later on, but it became inflamed and accelerated, I guess, in seriousness. I, I was asked to write a piece which kind of just 
kind of rundown of the, and they got pulled in the end. So the article, the editor said, you know, sorry, unfortunately, we just don't have the capacity for it. I, thought, I said, that's fine. About two days later, somebody else reached out from Tribune and they said, we need a piece about the importance of BDS in relation to what's going on, you know, non-violence and organising to, similar to, to South Africa, to isolate Israel and, you know, hold them to account. As I was writing, I thought this is quite unambiguous, the way I'm writing and the way I've been allowed to express myself. And I thought, I didn't think that existed within the... The, the space for it. Yeah, the media ecosystem. I thought, obviously, it's left-wing media. But I thought even then there might be some level of censorship or, you know, treading on eggshells. And it was then I realised there is an opportunity here. Like, there's clearly... I've got editors who are confident in me to be able to express that and willing to commission that and willing to put their, their neck on the line, if you like. And so I thought, OK, perhaps... I remember writing and thinking to myself, there is an opportunity here, there is a chance to carve out an identity, I guess, in the field. I think it's important that we give the listeners a very brief history lesson, if that's even possible, on the Israel and Palestine conflict. So as much as you possibly can, I know that you'll have your own opinions of this, but can you just try and give it as an objective overview as possible from where we've been to where we are now and how we've got to the stage where Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the current president, constitutional crisis, got that out, protests, everything in between. Yeah, so it's been, I guess, two people's claim to the land to kind of, you've had 75 years since Israel's formation where Palestinians have, have argued that, you know, this is the land theft, annexation, occupation. Israel said, no, actually, this is our right to the land, etc. One has reigned supreme because of the military might and military capabilities, the imbalance of power. And it's just kind of a wrestle for that control since. You've got, for example, you've had the 1948, the, the period when the kind of Palestinians were forced out in droves, systematically dispossessed before the state of Israel, and then you had a 67 war, the 1973 war, you had the Oslo Accord. So there's been various junctures, if you like. Yeah, uh, multiple points where they kind of accelerated the conflict. And each time Israel's control has gone up, Israel's maintained its occupation. It has multiple bombardments of Gaza. We've had 2008, we had 2014, 2021. 2014 um, is when I remember when I was in university, that was my second year. And I think I remember that one pretty vividly, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what started, I guess, from, I mean, the Zionist viewpoint has been to establish a, a Jewish state in mandated Palestine at the time and then since it's just it's gone up and up and Palestinians have tried to basically wrestle back as much as they can elements of liberation freedom sovereignty those are the buzzwords for, for Palestinians and that's where we are now but ultimately now it's a, it's a situation of the oppressor and the oppressed and Palestinians trying to get back as much as they can and Israel not really willing to give up an inch mm. and so it's two irreconcilable narratives really and mm. that's why you have multiple boiling points at various mm. points uh, historically I know you said you, you spoke there about the religious element and you know you can go all the way back to the crusades for Christians against Muslims and Jews against Muslims etc this is what I think what people and the listeners with very little knowledge will get can they get confused by how do you separate the religious angle from the political angle because when someone tries to wade in who might not be educated about it I think they're always careful or scared or anxious about being accused of Islamophobia on the one hand or being accused of anti-Semitism on the other. Yeah, it's a tough one because you've got very, for example, Orthodox Jewish community who call out Israel's practices and say, actually, this is not in the name of, of Judaism. Mm -hmm. And you have equally, for example, you've got Fatah, the faction in, in the West Bank, who don't necessarily agree with Hamas's approach towards, you know, religious violence, if you like, mm -hmm. or the, the religious aspect of the resistance. There are aspects where people think it's a kind of a, pl a blanket approach. It's not. They incorporate religion how they like, and then they implement it accordingly. It's more... Some of the, the biggest resistance fighters or the biggest figures in Palestinian history are very secular. You know, they come from a Marxist tradition. So that doesn't mean that their approach to Palestine is any different to somebody who might see it from a religious lens. It's multifaceted. There's different approaches to it, different ways of people understand it. There is a religious dynamic just because, for example, Jerusalem, the claim of how important that is for Palestinians, mm -hmm. for Christians, 
um, a contested land, well. exactly. So yeah. there are there are aspects which make it have a religious dynamic to it, and a religious angle. But is what we're seeing on the ground a source of or rooted in something religious? Less so. I think it's more political. For example, Israel is more pol- a political ideology, and what it's been trying to establish for mm. multiple years. The conflict has been depicted in various forms of popular culture in the last forty years. One of the most famous examples that. I watched before we did this interview, mate, is the Steven Spielberg-directed film Munich in 2005, which was an adaptation of the 1984 George Jonas book Vengeance, which was based on the massacre of 11 Israeli athletes of the 1972 Summer Olympics team by the terrorist Palestinian group Black September. Another example could be argued to the game like The Last of Us, which is a lot of allegories between the Israelis and Palestinians. I'm not sure I quite agreed with the portrayal of that, but that's a different story. What I found in my research for this podcast is that there is quite a glaring lack of popular culture from the Palestinian side. So just tell me if you have watched the film about what your views on it and why do you think that is? I think what was interesting about the film, I remember when it came out, the subsequent reaction from like some of the Israeli side, there was almost anger. And I think when there's a lot of anger from both sides, it suggests maybe that it did hit a nerve somewhere or right. at least it, it depicted things in a certain way. But it was just interesting because the way the, the film kind of followed on with the like the real, if you like, dogged approach to, you know, following what happened, the, the, the assassination, what would then happen, like how's the reaction from like the Israeli side. And a lot of people said, oh, no, that's not really how it is. It's not just, you know, inhumane and, you know, just tunnel vision. And others said that is what's been happening. <laughs> so it's a lot of the time it's like films can be a means of showcasing what's happening on the ground in a way that is more digestible than perhaps a news report or an article. Mm. But from the Palestinian side, there's definitely been, there's been a suppression, but equally now there's been a rise in, whether it's arts, whether it's music, poetry, mm-hmm. there are different ways where Palestinians are realising, despite the suppression from the Israeli side, there are ways we can showcase our struggle and, you know, inform people and educate people mm-hmm. and use it as a means of solidarity. What I found really interesting about the film, and I think this is why Eric Banner might have got Oscar nominated for his role, is that when the Israeli, I don't know what you want to call them, soldiers or men who are recruiting, they're sort of this ragtag bunch of like, one's an accountant, they're they're not like stereotypical Mossad agents. When they get past a certain point, you kind of see his descent, he comes out of it, but you can see his descent into madness where he gets that tunnel vision and he sees every target as the next objective and the goal to achieve the the resolution, where actually he's being used. He eventually realises, no, you've not even given me the right intelligence. This is just all rubbish. And then he kind of becomes disillusioned with it to the point where he actually becomes fearful of his own life. Do you think that accurately sort of portrays the cycle of violence? And and how do you think we break it? I think it's interesting because a book I recently read depicted as kind of the the situation for people within Israel who have been given certain instructions like in the intelligence realm where one person said, look, we have to just... He was taking orders from above. And they said, you know, just clear out the building. And he was asking, are you sure it's quote-unquote terrorists? And they said, listen, clear out the building. It emerged later that actually it was a, like civilians, it was innocent people in there. Mm. But he said it was only afterwards where, when he stepped back from this realm of security and protection and everything where you're so, you know, it's so drilled in you, we must defeat the enemy. And mm. both sides see the other as the enemy. And that, like I said, is... If you're looking from the outside, from the outside perspective... It means it's a boiling point. I'm sure there are aspects, whether it's in the IDF, whether it's in the military, whether it's in the intelligence, in whatever realm it might be, in the political realm, where it's been driven into them that this is the only way, it's a zero-sum game. And then they step out and they think, oh, I was taking instructions that were perhaps, you know, dodgy. It was perhaps more to it than just honesty. There was more to it than just a, an attempt at, you know, resisting and protecting the Jewish state. So mm. I think it's definitely one that, that comes into it. When you've got two sides at the moment which are so polarised... 
and because there's been such a long period without peace, I think both sides, especially the moderates, will get more and more frustrated. So now you've got a point in Israel where Benjamin Netanyahu has been in power, I think, three times or four times? Four. Four times. This yeah. is his fourth presidency. And he got to power this current time by basically assembling a coalition of some of the most far-right elements of Israeli politics. So when you've got him on one side, how do we achieve peace? And what is the state of play on the Palestinian side? Because Hamas are still in power and they were elected, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Earlier on in the 2006-07 elections. And it's interesting because, for example, the Israeli side have hardened their stance. And the more kind of the Overton window has shifted, whereas before you had people speaking about a Palestinian state and, you know, the shared status of Jerusalem and whatnot, that's gone. You've got Smotrich and Ben Givet, existing government ministers, who have openly, he was on TV the other week saying, my, my rights and my family's rights in the West Bank precede yours. They're more important than yours to a Palestinian. This is mm. Ben Givet, government And, and can minister. you just give the, the listeners some context about the encroaching settlements as well? Yeah, so that's, that's another, for example, even now we're discussing so-called peace with the Saudis. And they're saying, oh, as long as you know, if you then create a state around these borders and then the settlements won't get impacted, it's quite literally land theft. When you look at what the meaning of peace is, you can't have true liberation if the very mechanisms that are preventing that liberation still exist. Mm. So whether that's the colonial aspect, whether it's the siege on cars, whether it's the occupation, the apartheid discriminatory laws, there's multiple aspects which are worsening the conditions of Palestinians on the ground. And things can only improve mm. once those are dismantled. Can you justify the term apartheid? Because it's, it's obviously a very strong term. And people, when they think of that, will refer back to South Africa from the 1990s backwards. Just give them the context about why that term is, in your opinion, is appropriate for this political situation. I think it's a term that's been used by Palestinians for a long time, describing a situation on the ground. And it's now been corroborated by respectable human rights organisations. You've got Israeli ones, you've got the major ones like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, who have all concluded, look, and it's rooted in international law, so it's a forensic report with forensic conclusions about the state of play. And there are people now, for example, a South African-born writer who witnessed apartheid growing up and who doggedly resisted the term. He's written multiple articles. And then he recently came out... This is a very big term to use. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And he came out in Haaretz and he said, I can't resist the term anymore. It's quite simply apartheid. Mm. Historian Benny Morris is another one. He just last year was in a Wall Street Journal and he said, we need to stop using the word apartheid. He recently co-signed a letter, 2,000 academics in Israel, Palestine and around the world and public figures who said, we need to stop the mm. occupation and end the apartheid. So just explain the reality of that. Why is it apartheid? Like, whether it comes to law, treatment, everything in between. Yeah, the treatment of Palestinians. So Palestinians is, is almost like a tiered system. So you've got the Palestinians within... Like a caste system in India. Yeah, okay. yeah. So Palestinians are on the receiving under discriminatory laws. Arabic is, is designated as second language. It's not even a main language in Israel, despite the fact that millions speak it. There are laws which allow Israelis from anywhere around the world to come and, you know, buy properties and reside in Israel. No such thing exists for Palestinians. I mean, you can't fly into Israel. I can't, I, yeah, I can't fly into Israel. I've got to go through Jordan. You're not on a no-fly list. You literally just can't fly there. Yeah. I was shocked by that. If you've got a Palestinian passport, it just means that your way into Israel or your way into Palestine, your way into going home, basically, is different just because by dint of having a passport. Mm. So how do you get in, just for the listeners? So I go through Jordan and make okay. a crossing over into, into the occupied territories. So I fly into Jordan Airport and then have to then go into the King Hussein crossing, which is jointly governed by Israelis and the Jordanians and then you go through to the Palestinian Authority and then you enter the West Bank. Wow, what a convoluted yeah. way. Yeah. Let's talk about your article on Palestinian prisons now, mate. So just tell me why you wanted to explore this part of the conflict and the mental health themes it explores too. Yeah, this is this was interesting because it's one of those things where even me, myself, I'm guilty of overlooking that aspect. So we know a lot of Palestinian prisoners are being detained. 
but you never really know the depths and the kind of the details and the stories yeah, yeah. this was an opportunity to shed light on some of that and bring to light what happens behind a closed door so we know for example the the green light to murder and you know the occupation and the checkpoints and then the, the separation ward that's all visible that's all tangible what happens behind closed doors in those prison buildings that's a different story which is perhaps untold mm. and i thought if i could shed light on that it would be be important the article begins with the story of a nine-year-old called amal nakhleh is that the right pronunciation yeah. who's a palestinian boy who suffers with a rare condition called myasthenia gravis and his treatment by the israeli authorities and it's based on a spurious at best imprisonment why did you focus on him first and what makes his story so central to the wider issue i think because it crystallized I guess the dehumanisation and the nature of Israel's I mean, kind he's of nine, barbarism. First of all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, he went into prison. He was detained firstly off a whim. It was just you know, it was silly. Like you said, he had a condition which needed a CT scan every six months. He got it once in eighteen months in prison, and this is a common theme: the medical neglect of Palestinians. So it goes to show that not even children are exempt from kind of Israel's treatment. I can understand, for example, well, I can't understand, but as in, I can from the Israeli side when you think, okay general rules of war okay you leave the elderly you leave the innocent the women the children that should be basic principle but you're looking at the fact that they're handcuffing children they're throwing children into prisons and it's it's inhumane With an immune condition yeah, yeah it's inhumane at the best of times but when you actually target children that's when you, it begins to hit home just mm. how kind of barbaric some of the practices are and in the article you say there are at least 600 palestinian prisoners who are suffering from ill health with many having the same chronic diseases that amal had and they are subjected to, quote, arbitrary detainment, administrative detention without trial, and conditions that the international human rights community has said constitute cruel and blatant and even sadistic violations of international law, end quote. So how do these factors affect the mental health of the men, and also their wives, and the children you spoke to for this piece? Uh, the biggest thing is hope. It's happened on so many occasions where someone is told, or they've been informed, okay, you're coming out soon, you're going to be released. And then suddenly your sentence is extended for no reason. It's just because they can. And the worst thing you can strip from someone is hope. And that has an impact on the families who think, okay, he's coming home. And then you've got to go back to his visitations. Also not easy. It's not easy to get access, to get permission. Sometimes when things flare up, when Israel just decides, as it does, today we're going to be this level of, you know, inhumane. They just cancel all visits to prisoners. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of aspects. It's the unknown, effectively. Mm -hmm. And we all know from any aspect of life, when something's out of your control, it can drive you mad. And so now apply that to like a prisoner living under occupation forces or now imprisoned by occupation forces. It just makes it tenfold. Mm. The stat I found most shocking is that of the 7,000 Palestinians the Israeli authorities arrested in 2022, according to the Palestinian Centre for Prisoners Studies, at least 164 of those women and 865 were children, 142 of whom were under the age of 12. Now, one could make the counter-argument that many of the men may or may not be imprisoned for any number of offences, perhaps even the women to some degree. But children is the one, as we said, that really hits home. I'm never going to justify an action from someone based on any action from an opposing side for many different reasons. But for the children, won't this just create a new generation of angry, frustrated and potentially dangerous men? Yeah, and that's why you're seeing now people have ditched the traditional leadership in Palestine where people have realised... You've tried to go the diplomatic route, you haven't had any success, and our lives have continued to get worse economically, in every possible sense, under the occupation. You know, the restrictions on human life, on freedom of movement with families, the exposure to bombardment regularly, the, you know, the closure, military incursion in Jenin, Nablus, mm. for example. So people are realising we can't rely on the Palestinian leadership, and at the same time, things are getting worse for us. There is no hope in sight. And like I said, going back to the idea of hope, 
somebody who has nothing to lose is very somebody person, yeah it's somebody yeah. that has no limits and like i said it's when you place it in that perspective people who have this is 75 years of settler colonialism it's 56 plus years of occupation and so people are fed up and female palestinian prisoners don't fare any better than the men and in the article you provide evidence of this when you speak to lena Katar, which is one of 17,000 Palestinian women arrested by Israel since 1967. So tell the listeners about her story and the suffering she experienced. She served a six-month sentence aged, I think, just 18. And then she was arrested on suspect of something she didn't do, was kept in prison. And this is just one of those ones where she speaks about humiliation, assault. And this is, again, whenever these people speak about their experiences, they say this isn't exclusive to us. This is something that we've seen and most Palestinians have corroborated and even the notion of detention without trial when you know based on suspicion I think the highest peak is at the moment so I think there's more than a thousand detained at the moment it's the highest peak of Palestinians detained without trial at the moment so you're witnessing kind of intensification of the occupation and the oppression and like I said these stories it's not just one person it's not two it's scores of people throughout the years who have been subjected to different types of you know maltreatment dehumanization occupation mm. and prison is one particular realm she also makes reference to something which sounds so dark it actually gave me chills when I read it, which is something called Albosta. Can you just explain what that is? It's basically the method of transportation for prisoners, whether it's for a court hearing, whether to another prison, and it's made deliberately arduous as an experience. So it's like metal doors, sorry, metal seats. It's like split down the middle. You're sat, you know, on hard seats. You're handcuffed. There might be dogs parading. It smells. It's cold it's basically like sending a message you're subhuman to us you don't deserve better conditions and it's just the whole concept of the physical and the psychological treatment of palestinians like with the torture you think you're leaving prison for a court case or you've been transferred to another prison or whatever it might be for a medical case or hospital check and even then the level of control that they have over you doesn't change and so the psychological and the physical impact of that is is, is deep mm. one of the people you speak to is a peer in your industry called nidal abu Akka who's a 54-year-old Palestinian journalist who has been in and out of detention for significant periods of his life. And the consequence of this, as you said, his life has been on hold, basically. Impacts of his relationship with his daughter, his family. Would you agree with that, the element of just his life permanently being on hold? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's one of those ones where, again, for someone who's 54 years old, he's got, he's got a family behind him, he's got people that depend on him, he's got daughters, he's got children... And it's just the fact that, like we referred to, you think you're coming out, you think things will be okay again. And then it's just, again, that hope snatched away. And it's interesting because the reference to him being a journalist, this is an attempt, again, we saw, for example, the murder of Shirin Abu Akhle when she was murdered last year. Journalists are suppressed in particular. This is an, an attempt to kind of hide what's happening. And whether it's through prison systems, whether it's through the murders, whether it's through suppression, whether it's whatever it might be, censorship, how Palestinians and otherwise document the occupation and document the oppression is being targeted and this is one of the ways so a journalist being in prison is not a coincidence it's not just that he happens to be a journalist mm. it's just that they're treated as like okay this is somebody who is a truth teller this is somebody who's given a different side of the story so we kind of this is another way to kind of muzzle what is what, mm. what comes out and how people see Israel I think many people could present a counter argument to say that you know Israel is one of the only democracies in the Middle East it's surrounded by countries who which are effective dictatorships However, what you're describing is a democracy for only a group of people, not another. Yeah, and that's yeah. why I was just regarding the protests, which were for democracy and the preservation of the pillars of Israel. I was quite cynical from the beginning, and I say to people, this isn't a protest for equality and freedom for all. This is a protest and equality for the, you know, the Israeli residing there. So it's not a case of, you know, they're talking about the courts. These are the very courts that green light home demolitions and, you know, the displacement of Palestinians. 
So this is a system which there are two tiers. And so if you're going to say equality for all, that's fine. But they were just saying we need to preserve Jewish democracy, you know, the shrine in Israel. So all the practices and all the pillars, if you like, of democracy, whether it's human rights, whether it's court, whether it's pluralism, those don't exist for Palestinians. Equality, human rights, those don't exist for Palestinians. So it can't be a democracy. You know, it's, it's a one apartheid state, not a one state for all. The most powerful line in the article is its conclusion when Lena says, Freedom and dignity are red lines. That's all we want in our land. I hope the world will hear us, but I have no idea if they will. Tell me what you wanted from this article and for your fellow Palestinians. It was a strong line even as, as we were having the interview. I was like, okay, that's, that's quite potent. That's definitely going in the conclusion. People don't realise the impact of being neglected. Or When I was in Palestine recently, my, my grandmother, when she saw some of the protests, there was a, to commemorate 75 years of the Nakba. And she said, I didn't realise there was this level of solidarity in Britain because they're so programmed to think that they're being left alone. When you're stripped of any hope, when Lena mentions that we need to have hope, we need to have something to cling on to, we need to show people that we're going to fight, we're going to resist and we want people to be on our side. They're just asking for a bit of recognition to hold Israel to account, to recognise the Palestinian plight, to recognise the struggle and what they're demanding and what they've been saying for so many years. I just want to move on now because as a British Palestinian yourself, how much extra pressure do you put yourself under to make sure that anything you write isn't just of a high quality but well sourced, airtight, given how emotionally charged this issue is and how one wrong stat or one wrong line could have you accused of all sorts potentially. Yeah, it's a tough one because you get there's two sides to it. For example, I might end the conclusion with I might conclude the article with something like it's a moral imperative to hold Israel to account and somebody with pro Palestinian sympathies will be like, Oh no, this is you're in unicorn land, you're expecting something that's not gonna happen. I've got in the article in some way, I've got to, you know, bring some hope to it. And at the same time, you get people call you, you know, a fascist, you're a, you're a Jew killer, you want people to die, you're a sympathiser with, like, terrorists, etc. And that's why you have to be careful, even just statistics, because people are willing to latch on to anything. Mm. I wrote an article once, actually, as part of the learning process, where I cited statistics of how many have been displaced and, and home demolitions. The link that I gave, the hyperlink, you know, the reference, mm-hmm. didn't match the figure that I'd given. And I didn't realise I'd used the wrong link. And so the editor pulled up on it and he said, you know, just, he goes, we're more than happy to always commission anything on Palestine. But people are looking for any mistake or anything that could discredit because that looks like I'm making things up. Mm, mm. And it looks like the editor's allowing that. And so small things like that where sometimes, I'm sure... There's you could get away with it perhaps on another yeah, issue. But like yeah, like if you say something, I don't know, like, oh, the number of people who have left the Labour Party is around, etc., etc., X amount of figure. If that's, you know, not a exactly accurate figure, People can, you know, you kind of let... But if you're talking about demolition of homes, and you know, it sounds like you're making things up and you're trying to aggravate things and, you know, exacerbate things. So that element of really trying to be careful in what is published, what is written, so that what you write is not discredited and people don't have an excuse to then say, we can't commission him or don't mm-hmm. listen to him, he's just making things up. And as a British Palestinian yourself, and obviously you're, you're a very professional journalist, but how hard was it to retain that professionalism in those interviews when they're incredibly emotional and they are your compatriots, basically. Yeah, it's, it's quite tough because you're trying to get a message across. And at the same time, it's like you're working, so this is somebody's interview and interviewee. But at the same time, this is like somebody going through so much. You know, you have to sometimes separate the human element, but you can't. Like, I'm sitting and I'm thinking, this is, this is brutal. You're telling me this, I'm, I'm going to have to put it down on paper and I'm going to have to edit some of it out because I've got a word count. But that's just as important as the next part. And mm. So there are other elements where you, sometimes you think word counts are just abstract. If somebody's got a story to tell, let them tell the story and let them explain and elaborate. The way I see it is that at least I can give them a voice. I see it as a voice to the voiceless. If I can even just, I know I'm in a small percentage of people, but if I can at least help people amplify their message, at least raise some awareness. 
that might change someone's perception it might enhance someone's views and think oh actually i grew up thinking x y and z maybe there is another side and then you do further reading and the effect is so on and so mm. forth you spoke earlier about a lot of young palestinians especially men not having any hope do you have hope i think you have to have hope <laughs> you have to but i look at the current iteration of the palestinian leadership and the political class i don't see hope there but i see hope in how people when i was in, in palestine recently, i was in the west bank and I see the hope that they have, the kind of the joy, the real sense of community. These people are not letting the occupation wear them down, even though it's designed to wear them down physically and mentally. People are still saying, we, we will have our stay, we will have liberation, we will return, for example. So I see that and I think to myself, well, if you have hope, if you're so resilient, how can I not be? I want to move on to industry issues now. And the first you want to discuss, mate, is class. So you're from a working class background. You're already a minority in the country, but within journalism, you're even more of one. How much of a challenge is that to succeed and how do you avoid seeing yourself as a victim where it could hold you back despite the, le the legitimate grievances you could have? It's a tough one because, like I said, when I was speaking to people at the time I was like writing and you know you follow people on Twitter, it might be other working class journalists of colour and, and minority communities and they'd all say the same thing. They'd say we've got like multiple hoops to jump through. It's like being working class, it's, you've only got a small pool anyway. And then you're a person, you know, you're from a minority community and you think... Well, that means they're not going to commission me on this on this and that and I've got less things to talk about, etc. So it is quite hard. And I always say, for example, if I now go on Twitter or write an article bashing migrants or saying, you know, look, I'm coming through Dover, the English channel, this, we need to stop this. Give me a few weeks, I'll be on question time. They'll have me on a panel. And it's just one of those things where it's so easy to spew hate and it's so easy to, you know, gain recognition and as a whether it's a journalist, whether it's in the political realm, when you have certain views or you're from a certain background in this country. But if you're then, I guess, on the other side, quote-unquote, and you're trying to offer a different perspective, whether it's on poverty, whether it's on economic matters, Palestine, wherever it might be on the left side of the spectrum, or trying to, again, be the voice of the voices, whether it's on, you know, benefit, universal credit, wherever it might be, not as many people are interested in that. And so the pool and opportunities of being commissioned and writing are just so... It's, it's much smaller in comparison. Mm. For many journalists, even ones who are given the tools that they need to succeed, it can be a very hard slog filled with rejection, hope, failure, more rejection, false dawns. And to succeed, you need a lot of mental strength and you need a lot of perseverance and character. How did you develop that in yourself to succeed? I think I had to basically force myself. I remember speaking to people and they were saying to me, you know, just, just hold on, it will get there. But like we spoke of here a little bit just before where you send a pitch and you think, okay, yeah, this is a great idea. And you go to sleep and you, you schedule the email for eight o'clock in the morning. It'll be the first email in the editor's inbox. And you wake up, it's like eight o'clock. Okay, fine, he's busy. He's having his coffee. He's got a meeting, 8.30, mm -hmm. 9, 9.15, 9.30, 10. And you're thinking, well, oh, so they don't like the idea. Or you might see somebody, you know, an article that you've pitched an idea and that's published or commissioned by someone of biggest status in journalism. And you think, well, I... That I, happens a lot, Yeah, and you're thinking, I had the same idea. Like, why do you have to keep going to the same people? A lot of people have perspectives to offer and, you know, things to say. And so it is, it is like you have to develop thick skin. Even if you don't have it to begin with, you end up forming that as you go along. Mm. Uh, there was one point where you came very close to giving up, mate, and you even wrote a tweet about it. Can you remember that tweet or even perhaps read it out for the listeners? Yeah, I remember something like, I, th I said, there's no in-between with journalism, some good days, some bad, and I'm sick of it, or something like that, and <laughs> it was just very unambiguous terms, and other multiple ones where I've had, you know, I've said, oh, I'm this close to quitting, you know the emoji where there's, there's a, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the thumb and the finger right <laughs> close to each other, and then I'm grateful because a lot of people did reach out and said, look, just keep plugging at it, you are quite good at what you do, and your voice is needed, I had senior 
obviously I won't name names, but I had people who have written for top newspapers and not even necessarily left wing. Mm. And they, they that's, reached that's out. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, and they reached out and, and I said to them, it's ironic, our politics are, are nothing alike. And yet you've taken the time out to just reassure me that actually this is how the industry is. Does that give is. you hope? Yeah, because <laughs> I, I looked and I thought, do you know what, you didn't have to tell me that. Mm. Like you could have easily just said, oh, this guy doesn't deserve to write anyway. Look at his views. And a lot of people are like that. Mm. It suggests A, that maybe I'm doing something right and B, you just have to keep plugging away. You have to keep persevering as hard as it is in anything whether it's journalism just any industry once you just you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel but you have to I guess pretend a lot like mental the, health difficulties as well yeah exactly <laughs> yes yeah. it's, it's it's a tough one but like I said because I enjoy it as well it's not necessarily where I'm waking up and I'm doing something which is like a chore and I want to break through and I want to succeed and that does help as well mm. the final issue we're going to talk about is work-life balance so how has this affected your mental health as a journalist it's quite tough because I, for example, I work in a research capacity nine to five and then I might get an email at random time, 2.30pm. I'm already planning to go home, play Xbox, <laughs> go gym. And someone says, oh, we've got an article. Do you reckon you could write this, you know, for 3pm tomorrow, for example? And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't really want to. In the sense of just because I've got, you know, my schedule, I'm, it might be tired. You might be, you know, you've got, you're stressed out. You've got things going on at home. But you can't afford to say no, especially if you're starting out because you're a freelancer. They may never come to you again. And so you have to make that decision. So I've left work sometimes at six o'clock and gone down to the Starbucks around the corner and worked from six onwards to like 10, 11 o'clock because I've got to get that article out. And in my mind, I'm thinking that might be the article that gets me a column. Yeah. That might be the article that takes me up you there. You perpetually think that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if I reject it, that also might be the article that... They never to come people, to you again. Yeah, yeah, he's not serious. We've offered him a chance. He's always pitching. We're now offering to commission him. Why doesn't he want it? So it's the fact that you have to factor in Sometimes you may not have a weekend. There's been times where, not necessarily on Palestine, but on issues before where I've seen news break out and there's almost dread in me because I've got plans on a Sunday. And a, I lot thought, of, a lot of BBC News journalists feel yeah, that way, mate. And, I'm, work there. and yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, I might have to write something now. Yeah. And I've got plans on a Sunday. I've got this to do and I've planned. And you're just thinking, okay, just get into the mindset. Zone, yeah, 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 like, yeah. okay, I'm, I might have to do it. And it's happened before. They've reached out and said, you know, Saturday, can you get this done by Monday morning? And the niche has become a blessing and a curse. <laughs> yeah, and I'm literally, and I'm sitting there thinking, how do I tell my friends? Like, and it's fine because I have done it in the end, and I always do. Mm. I've never said no to a, to an article, but it's just one of those things where if you're a you know a stable columnist or a, a journalist at the Times, for example, just a random one, you know every Wednesday two p.m. submit your article and that's it. Whereas when you're trying to forge a path and you're trying to like I said get that USP and trying to break through the field, you've got to do things that people otherwise don't. And mm. then just one day maybe I reflect and be like, that made me better. Do you think this trend is ever going to change or is it just simply the nature of the beast? I think it is the nature of the beast, but I also see a lot of good, young, left-wing journalists, working-class and minority community journalists who are developing, who are advancing their careers and who are breaking through. And I think the more we have kind of a new media and, you know, we're breaking away from this traditional media ecosystem, the more that those people can then bring others up with them. And I think that's the one thing I have noticed on the left, there is, there is a good sense of solidarity where people do recognise, okay, this person, let's try and bring people up. Whereas you'd assume, because that that is supposed to be your competition, mm. in, in complete abstract terms, if there's three people going for on, whether it's Palestine, on whatever issues, on racism, Islamophobia, migrants, if three people want it, those three are your competitors. But the fact that we can bring each other up and not just, you know, pull the ladder up once we've gotten to the top, I think that will then be healthy moving forwards for any journalist. Let's reflect on your journalism journey, mate. So, so far, what has it taught you about yourself? I'm very impatient. Um, <laughs> Testify, brother. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's taught me to have a bit more patience, but I've, I've learned that, okay, 
things aren't always going to go your way. And that's not to say that everything's gone my way in life in general, but sometimes you have a dream, you have an aspiration, and then somebody has a different idea about it. And that could even apply whether it's on what you write about or whether it's the path that you want to go. I've pitched ideas before and someone says, this is good, but, and they send me a different approach for the article. I'm still writing the article, but it's not how I thought it would be. Mm. It's now taking a different angle and suddenly maybe I'm not being as original as I could be. But then I'm thinking to myself, that's how the field is, that's how the industry is, that's how you know, liaising with editors and commissioning editors works. So it's taught me about myself in terms of recognising and being able to adapt, being a bit more patient, being a bit more resilient, and I guess trusting the process. We talked about Hamza, the journalist and researcher. Now I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests on this topic, this question first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Hamza we meet here? It's interesting because at the time, you sometimes, you know, when someone says mental health, you think depression, you think, well, it's suicide or trauma, yeah. yeah. And it's only looking back where you think, oh, actually, maybe I wasn't as confident or maybe, like, I overthought certain things or... You know, why did I tackle things a certain way? And you realise, for example, why did I always turn to football? And you realise, was it because I loved football or did I need was an escape? Escapism? There we go, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's only when you grow older and you realise, actually, maybe some of the things that I did or I do was me reacting to a mental health issue that I didn't know existed. Mm. Because, like you said, everyone always thinks trauma, whether it's suicide or whether and it's mental depression. Mental health is not mental illness. I always it, make exactly, that exactly. Mm. It's not something physical, it's not something tangible. Sometimes you might be experiencing something and you're simply unaware. Mm. And so you have to then kind of, you only, as you get older, you realise, oh, that's why I did X, Y, and Z. The main part of your mental health journey you want to discuss, mate, is the death of your grandfather in 2017. So he was 75 years old and he lived in the West Bank. So just tell me first about the man he was and your relationship with him. It's actually interesting because I only met him in person twice. Wow. Okay. And yet, I remember I wrote this in the article to commemorate the Nakba recently, and I said, not to say like I didn't like my other grandparents because they all mean so much to me but he was one I just had almost like an unbreakable bond with mm. and he's the one I saw almost I, I didn't see my dad's father because he passed away very early but my other ones my grandmother I stayed with her recently my other grandma, grandmother passed away some years ago but my grandfather he's the one that I kind of saw the least but always just you know there was something the yeah there was yeah. something between us all the time and he'd always take the time out it was like He'd call up any time Liverpool lost, for example, <laughs> and he, you know, just conversation. He knew I was mad about Running Liverpool. On you. <laughs> yeah, basically, and you know how grandparents know what's dear to you, and mm. so they make an effort to take an interest in that and really bring about conversation with that. And the fact that he'd gone through so much, he'd gone through, you know, financial issues. He was kicked out of his home in Jerusalem. He, he had that. I mentioned earlier the resilience. He's give his stories about how you know what happened with his family, his mother, their displacement, and so he was always somebody with such courage and such wisdom. And I always thought, like, it's a shame because even now as I'm writing, and I'll get on this a bit later on, but I just want to say to him, like, how am I doing? Am I representing the, the cause good enough? Is it to a good enough level? Those are instances where you realise, you know, having somebody there, somebody you can turn to. And, and grandparents have different roles and different functions mm. at different points in your life. And he's one of those ones where the older I got, I kind of interact with him on a, on a different level to when I was younger. Mm. I remember being young and my mum would you know, say, you know, speak to him and you're on the phone, on Skype, whatever it might be. And it'd just be football, Liverpool, etc. Then as I got older, it'd be, how's your health? How's this? How's the situation? How are you holding up? And he'd say, how's your work? And, and then we'd speak about, a bit about politics and then delve into some of his history. You know, there's, there was always a bond and he always felt so close. And like I said, I only ever saw him twice mm. in person. And one, I can't remember because I was so young. <laughs> At the time he died, you were still finishing your university dissertation. 
So how did the grief affect that process? It was hard because it was the first death that I'd experienced. We had a period in our family, thankfully, when there was pretty much no one had passed away. Uncles, aunties, anyone, grandparents. And then this hit us. My mum had flown, obviously, because he was getting ill. And then she called it in that morning. And I was about two weeks away from submission. I remember looking at my dad. We had a discussion afterwards. And he just said, what are you going to do? And I said, I can't really get an extension because how long is the, grieve, the grieving process going to be? How is it going to be? Well, what's going to happen? I said, you know, what? I'm going to dedicate this to him. I'm going to instead knuckle down. And you also need with grief, you don't know how to react. My way of reacting was I need to be distracted. And so I can shut out any ideas, any thoughts. You need to be on autopilot, basically. Yeah. And I thought, I remember on, I think two days after he passed away, I went to university that day to study, to get the dissertation done. And I think my dad even said to me, he goes, are you sure you want to go? My brother said, why are you going? I said, I need to get out of the house. Like, this mm. is going to be my way of reacting and my you way You jump out the pool of grief, don't you? Yeah, yeah and even for a moment. just need yeah. something that, you know, tunnel vision, just to, I guess, escape. And in the end, I did dedicate the dissertation to him. Mm. You spoke about your grandfather being a political man as well, having conversations about that. How much inspiration did you take from him in not just choosing your degree subject, but even journalism as a career? Yeah, a lot, because I remember we used to have a lot of discussions when we used to sit down and even whether it's phone calls, whatever it might be, like I said, when it shifted towards as you get a bit older, and it sounds bad, but you know when you're younger, it seemed, it seemed like it's like a burden when you have to speak to grandparents or mm. you just in that mindset, you want to just play, you want to go out, unless whatever you're doing. <laughs> yeah, unless... Nancy, unless. Nancy, £20, pound, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, yeah, let me, let's speak. When he used to detail his life experience, even if not explicitly, when he used to just speak generally about his... He's like, whether he's going to Jerusalem, what, he, what he's doing, how he grew up. It could be in a passing comment. And then you're like, wow, this man went through a lot. And my mum always used to say he's the one that bestowed his wisdom on her. And a lot of how she sees things. And I, I see a bit of that as well. Because I see so much of my mum, so much of him in my mum. Mm. And I see a lot of my mum in myself. Mm. And I just think that's been passed down from generation to generation. You said you wanted to make him proud. Because by extension, as he was your mother's father, it would make her proud too. So... How did you feel when you finally submitted the dissertation? It was relief more than anything. The fact yeah. that I managed to plough on. And How many words was it? Ten, I think. Okay, I did two eight. I'm thinking that I did two eight thousand words. So yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Because some people it was like five, and I thought mm. that's, 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 that's an essay. That's an essay. Yeah, that's an essay. <laughs> I think yeah, we had t it was ten thousand and ten percent leeway. Okay. So eleven or nine, and yeah, I remember I submitted it, and like I said, I, I dedicated it to him. As I was writing it, I, was, I just thought, imagine what he would want me to do. He'd want me to crack on. He'd want me to put all Did the you imagine like in. standing over your shoulder? Yeah, quite literally yeah. like thinking, okay, what would A, my mum want to do? And how would he want me to react? And then when I did submit it, it was a thing of, I remember telling my dad, I thought, okay, do you know what? I'm glad I did. Rather than get like extenuating circumstances or go through that process. And then maybe the grief hits harder in those months. And then you've, you've got to pull yourself up again. Mm. I was glad in the end that I just pulled through. We spoke earlier about the fact that because you hold a Palestinian passport, you couldn't fly to Tel Aviv, you can't fly to Israel. So how did that affect the way you grieved? Because you, I imagine, couldn't go and see him quickly or if you did, you had to go through Jordan. And how? Yeah. And your mum as well, that's a whole story in itself. Yeah, so I did actually go when I because obviously the dissertation and had university at the time. And I think my passport was expired at the same time, I believe, which is... <laughs> that's a bad timing. <laughs> yeah, the worst. I'd, I'd left it for so long. But my mum, as soon as he'd got ill, he was in hospital, my mum called up her sister. They're the only two that reside here from, from her family. And she said, look, we need to go. Let's go on the next plane. And they literally booked for, I think, that evening. When they arrived, they arrived, I think, the following afternoon or at some point, And they'd missed him by about an hour. Oh. And what then really contextualises it, really puts it into perspective, is the fact that 
they flew into Jordan. From Jordan, they had to get get a cab, go to the, the King Hussein crossing, mm-hmm. go through that process, the checks and the you know the, the occupation side of it, basically, and then the, the PA, the Palestinian Authority. So basically, all the mechanisms of occupation and the structural, you know, what's visibly there as an as an occupation, was limiting them. Now, obviously, that's not to say maybe if they'd flown direct, who knows? Would they have caught? We don't know. But when you when you think to yourself, the structures of occupation could have effectively stifled or stopped you from having those last moments. Mm. That one's a bit hard to register. That one's a bit hard to digest. And like mm. I said, my mum arrived and saw everyone outside the house and she just looked and she said, where's Baba? Like, where's my dad? And they said, you know, we've got something to tell you. And it's the fact that they missed about, about an hour. And I, all I can imagine is, you know, normally get on a flight, it's bad enough, four hours, four and a half hours, I think it's the to wait. get there. Yeah. yeah, and then you've then got to wait at the crossing and you've got to go through people checking your passport and... All of this. Time, yeah, and then you've got to do the coach. And, and often, the Israeli, once you go through the Jordanian side, the Israeli side, they stop the coach. And sometimes it can be just randomly. They get off and they search and they do. And you're thinking, like, my father's ill. Like, he's on his deathbed. And it's those things, those instances in which they really hit home. And you mm. think that's, that's brutal. When your mother made the decision to give you a Palestinian passport, your grandfather said to you, one day you'll be free and you'll hold that passport. Is that the part of him that you hold closest to you today? Yeah, because there's a lot of Palestinians and obviously each to their own who would prefer to travel more easily and so to direct Tel Aviv and then into to Palestine through that way. And then obviously when it's like that, you can travel anywhere. So you can go to various parts of within the 48 territories. My grandfather always used to say, have this passport. And when we do have our state, you'll be one of the first people who's a citizen. And that is, that's quite powerful. And my mum had the, had kind of had that same mentality and even now when I travelled recently and I went through kind of the logistical barriers and kind of witnessing all up close and seeing that because I have this passport I'm treated differently but I said to everyone I don't regret it I'd keep the Palestinian passport I'd have mm. two, three, four if I could <laughs> like even though it brings about physical and mental pressure and uh, like you're, and you're there yeah that, and you're yeah. just sitting and thinking oh, this is so frustrating I can't just get on a plane and get off the plane and I'm at my hotel or whatever it might be I've got to go through multiple checkpoints and I've got to go through barriers and my thing's got to be searched a hundred times stamped a hundred times questions about this and that but like I said I still keep it because it's an important part of my identity mm. do you think that gives you hope as well in a way I think so yeah yeah it because like I said before you have to cling on to something and the fact that we have a passport I mean not having a passport would be almost an erasure of Palestinians as a as a community, as a population. Mm. So having that is something that you can at least legitimise your identity. Mm. Before we reflect on your mental health journey, mate, a big part of your life is your faith. You are a Muslim man. How did your faith help you with your grief, first of all? And how does it help you with your general mental health and life more generally? I think faith is a, a big part. Just because, for example, with in particular with being a Muslim, is we're taught that death is part and parcel and... It's not necessarily something, it's obviously tragic, but it's not like all doom and gloom. It's not necessarily bad because we know it's coming. And that's promised to us all, bro. Yeah, yeah. so you, you you learn to be able to, like, this is part of, like, God's divine timing. This Everything happens for a reason. And so when you when you see it from that perspective, you then don't ask yourself, oh, why now? You're obviously grieving. You're heartbroken and you're, you know, you're upset that things happen. But it basically minimises the thoughts or it should minimise the thoughts where you think, oh, pardon me why has this happened like why has this happened to me why was it this timing you just think okay this is part of a plan and i trust the plan this is a lesson for me yeah Yeah, you think this must have happened for a reason and then you dig within inside okay what's the reason is this for me to get closer to my faith is this for me to appreciate those who are around me is this a chance for me if i've got certain habits certain lifestyle certain mindsets or which are damaging to people to myself is this a chance to change it before it's my time so the multiple thought process that go into it 
so rather than it can be in a weird way in an ironic way it can be a wake-up call it can be a reminder instead of it being something that which is all doom and gloom something like a, a turbulent or tremendous mm. upheaval and what is your relationship with god with Allah? so as muslims we pray five times a day which we consider it a meeting with god five times a day and an opportunity for you to get things off your chest and to express and to ask for what you like and in relation to mental health that can be quite important because for example that could be considered venting it could be considered having something to lean on um, so having that connection where you have just five ten minutes a day or whatever it might be at moments in the day where you just it's just yourself and somebody else it's your higher power but to, for the listeners to literally as if you're speaking someone who's just listening and so you can then ask for and request for what you like and that just sometimes saying things out loud can be important me just saying this to you now for example it feels like okay somebody's listening to me in that context is important this is something i haven't really discussed on the podcast before but how do you think mental health and mental illness is viewed within muslim communities and palestinian communities as well i think it's twofold i think the religion places a significant importance on mental health but i think within our community sometimes like you get people say oh what do you mean you're feeling x y and z like why don't you just go and pray? Is is your pray away the mental yeah? Is like yeah. your religion? Oh, maybe your faith is low. Maybe like what's the reason? But actually, the two aren't always linked. You could be a really practicing man and you know have all the right values and all the and that ideals. Shame as well. That yeah, person. but you might go home. You might, for example, you give a sermon on the Friday and you're like this respected figure in the community, and then when you go home, you're still grappling with certain things. That doesn't mean that somebody can't tell you your faith is you know of a lesser standard. Like in society, it's still taboo. Mm. still one of those things that people look down on and frown upon and if somebody might say you know imagine how imams feel yeah like, exactly like they, they sometimes maybe they feel oh are we allowed to say we've yes. got mental health issues like, because we're meant to be seen as the strong ones yeah. people are of, of most faith yeah because people often see mental health as a weakness but actually it's just it's just something endemic it's just a way of life it's like night and day mm. people experience it in different on a different spectrum different levels different tiers but everybody does undergo some sort of experience or some mm. sort of challenge so how do we remove the stigma how do we remove the taboo and foster better understandings of mental health you know i did a, a podcast recently where i said to a pastor who was christian you know maybe all pastors should have mental health first aid training yeah. should that be the same for I think, yeah. maybe yeah just that, there, should be, there should be those steps just as for example years ago when you're applying for a job or whatever capacity you didn't have first aid training and then you did because you realized things could happen at any point so when you kind of apply that same logic of having the tools ready for when somebody needs you I think this is the same the same logic applies and I think people should always be ready and the starting point is to change and to I guess alter the perceptions so being able to speak openly being able to comfort someone and not having a dismissive attitude and this isn't just the Muslim community this is mm-hmm. general well, a lot of religions you, generally yeah, and yeah. even if we want to bring it down to gender for example like mm-hmm. if I'm with my friends and I say you know the macho male and all of that mm-hmm. and if I say to my friends because we're supposed to be in this era of hyper masculinity and you know men don't show their feeling which is nonsense by the way mm-hmm. If I, let's say, I'm in a group of friends and we, I say, oh, you know, like I'm feeling a bit down. They'll say, oh, come on, man up. Mm. But actually, that is part of being a man. You know, it's, it's how you react to things. It's, 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 it's part and parcel. So we need to strip away those kind of barriers to having discussions mm. across all the communities and have a, a multifaceted approach and take it seriously, in effect. In the last couple of months, you visited your motherland via Jordan and you stayed in Palestine. Just tell me about your experience there, mate. It's the first time going back in 14 years. Wow. Um, yeah. It was actually for work. We had a conference and then I, I said I'm going to stay for the remainder of the time in the, in the West Bank with my grandmother. So I stayed there for two weeks and it was an eye-opener. I had an article published recently which I detailed my experiences. Just small things like I remember as we pulled up to the house and I look and I could see a separation wall on one side and the, the settlements on the other. That encapsulated everything. 
in terms of that capacity. Well, there's a Banksy mural, I think, depicted on there one of those. Were, yeah, 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 yeah. Very famous one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a f- I think Banksy visited a few times, mm. and I remember there's actually one which he wasn't specifically for Palestine, but he applied it where he said if if graffiti has an impact, it will be illegal. In other words, anything that can help for liberation and freedom and everything is just shut down immediately. And not just in Israel, but obviously the context of Israel, we know. You must have a good but, network to try and get those, that, get yeah, those murals out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, it was, it was an eye-opener in the sense of seeing the occupation up front, seeing the hoops people have to jump through, just seeing freedom of movement being restricted. For example, I went to Masjid al in Jerusalem. I prayed there and I wanted to go there. But I had to be smuggled into Jerusalem, in effect, because I've got a West Bank ID. People think like you're in a barrel or something. Yeah, <laughs> like, li- li- like quite literally, I, I had to go with my with my uncle who works within the 48 territories, and so he has a permit, so he's allowed to travel freely. His number plate. This is mental. So anyone who travels within those territories has a yellow number plate. Anyone who's in the West Bank has a white number plate. So any car approaching, they know automatically who should be and who shouldn't be. Sometimes people can be shot on sight immediately because they might think oh, it's going to be a car ramming or whatever it mm. might be. That's a, another aspect of the tier system. So I was in his car in which he's quote-unquote allowed to enter and we went straight through but we rejected the first time and I drove with his wife and my, my auntie and again same thing they stopped me they searched me they've done everything and they said you're not coming through I said why they've said you've got a Palestinian ID West Bank ID I said yeah but I've got a conference I've got a conference invitation here's my pass like yeah is, and they yeah, said they said yeah. nope not happening I remember getting a bit annoyed because I'm not used to dealing with authorities on that level. I'm used to dealing with police here and security mm-hmm. here where you can afford to get a bit you know, aggressive. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was getting visibly flustered and I said to him, like, I said to the couple of them, like, you're, you're taking... Yeah, you know, taking the piss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of them said, don't raise your voice. You're not in Britain anymore. That to me, I was just like, I just, I thought in the moment, I, I kind of thought you, like, you, 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 <laughs> honestly, this is, this is mental. But just seeing that, all I told myself then is this is what people endure every day. Mm. So seeing all of those different dynamics up close and even being in Jerusalem, and every time, like, because I knew I was there illegally, I wasn't supposed to be in, in Jerusalem. I had no permit, no right to visit, supposedly. Which is, again, ironic because that's where my grandmother's born. It's where my mm. grandfather was born. It's the city of my, my my grandparents. And I'm not allowed to visit, supposedly. Do you think people either uneducated or on the other side of this debate, if they visited Gaza or the West Bank, and Gaza is one of the most densely populated places on earth... Do you think they would change their minds or even have a greater understanding or empathy about what the Palestinians have to go through? Yes, I think it can be a radicalising fact. I think a lot of people have gone and been like, oh, all we've been told is that, you know, the Palestinians are violent and all they do is they're terrorists. And and then you go to see them and you think, oh, hold on a minute, they don't have water unless Israel decides they have water. They've got a separation wall. They can't travel from here to there unless Israel decides, for example, in Gaza, the siege on Gaza, nothing goes in, nothing goes out. If Israel decides, okay, yeah, yeah. If Israel decides we're going to allow X amount of permits for you to work, you then have a lifeline for your family. If not, you don't. Those are the aspects of the, you know, the intricacies of occupation, which I think if people saw up close and saw, the, for example, the settlements, the vast settlement, the fact that some people can move freely, Palestinians can't. Those aspects, I think people realize, okay, this is this is quite literally an apartheid mm. state, and so maybe the view from which we've seen it, this two-state side that we've, you know. That, two sides sorry that we've seen this thing of oh it's just two violent entities who are just going at each other people then question the logic that they've been ex- exposed to i think it comes down to awareness and also accountability and and i recently listened to the brilliant bbc sound podcast series front lines of journalism with jeremy bowen and in the second episode he talks about this conflict and recounts the story of his lebanese driver being killed in may 2000 in south lebanon when an israeli tank crew fired at his taxi with jeremy and his cameraman in it and tried to murder them 
unsuccessfully. When incidents like these are not held to account, and I think Jeremy talked about how he got quite a lot of flack for even talking about this in his reporting because the people were saying you're not objective anymore, blah, blah, blah. What is the consequences for Israelis and Palestinians who are innocent caught in that crossfire? Yeah, I think because like I said, because it's been depicted as any Palestinian violence is terrorism, or it's it's easy to frame things in a in a certain lens. And so, like people will say, whenever something happens in Gaza, whenever something happens, the starting point should be okay. These are people who have under blockade, under siege, under occupation for you know multiple years, decades. When people kind of veer away from what's been the accepted narrative, which is that you know Israel has the right to defend itself and Palestinians are terrorists, etc. So when you're exposed to something different, it's just your instinct to think, oh, you're not being objective anymore. Why are you now distorting the facts? When actually the, the initial narrative is the wrong story, it's the wrong narrative to begin with. Let's reflect now on your mental health journey, mate. So first of all, similar question as before. What has it taught you about yourself? Um, to show a bit more resilience, to not just look at the obvious, to look mm-hmm. beyond, like to understand the wider objective, I guess, or at least the wider plan. And to also have patience. Like I said, the thing which I've, I've tried to appreciate is, actually somebody said to me, you should try doing this, is take a note of what you've achieved. And so it's very easy when you're trying to break through journalism to sit there and think, oh, this editor's, you know, he's ignored me and she's ignored me and this and that. And why haven't they commissioned me? Oh, you know, I've got so much to offer, etc. And then you think, oh, hold on a minute, but I was commissioned on this. I wrote on this and this got this much shares. And this person, you know, this person said to me, congratulations, it was a good piece. And this person in Palestine said, oh, this article reached us. And others said, oh, I've read this. I want to now commission you as a result. For example, it could be a book review, it could be mm-hmm. a podcast, it could be appearing on television, whatever it might be. When you reflect and you think, okay, this is where I want, like, 22-year-old me, with that list of what I've achieved, would be happy. So why isn't 27-year-old me happy, for example? So I think those aspects and being a bit more appreciative, a bit more grateful, not as impatient and a bit more resilient in the face of challenges. And if your grandfather was listening to his podcast, mate, what do you think you would say to him given what you've achieved and what do you think he would say to you? Maybe a Liverpool chat again? <laughs> he, he definitely, luckily we're not in the mud anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Man United in the mud now. <laughs> yeah. He'd throw in a comment about United Liverpool. Fan? He did this for anyone. Oh, okay, so he was just running banners. Yeah, the so he was just, it was, it was literally just, I remember he'd like, Liverpool would lose and he'd call up and he'd be like, see, you lost. And, just, just, just it, and I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, literally. He'd be the first to say, keep your feet on the ground and keep going. Because from what he sees, it, the, I guess the end goal is, is liberation, is freedom. And so if you give up now when others aren't giving up, why are you giving up? And arguably from a sheltered position, where I can, you know, I can write and I can have an element of freedom. Can I say the same things if I was if I was in Palestine, mm. if I was with Israel? Kind of, maybe I'd be thrown in prison. Who knows? Mm. So he would. I think he definitely, he definitely say just keep going. And from the perspective of like being a British Palestinian voice, I assume he'd say, or I suspect, strongly suspect, he'd say, there's a USP there. There's a chance for you to actually be a voice for the voiceless, and to make sure you use that as much as you can. And as a final question, if you could go back and talk to the Hamza who was struggling with the loss of his grandfather in 2017 whilst writing his dissertation, maybe the Hamza who was writing that tweet about giving up on journalism, or the Hamza who was competing against his peers for the few opportunities you even had, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I'd say it does get better. I'd say it's not all easy. And I think that's the important part, that things will get better and things will always get better. But let the hopes and let that shape your future, not the, the setbacks and the, the humps along the way. And I think the one thing is, journalism is, is something that there's always an opportunity for. You always need to tell a story, you always need to expose something, you always need to delve into something, you always need to 
analyze and break down something and so it won't always be easy there will be a lot of setbacks but i would like i just alluded to i'd look back at the person i when i was 22 23 even before being commissioned and being the person that people think of when they want something i say to him look you're almost a fraction of that or even just one percent of that mm-hmm. but editors are thinking of you editors want to give you a chance and actually that's all i ever wanted and so automatically from that perspective it's mission accomplished and so if you think of it as everything else being a bonus and having still having that you know that that ambition that drive but recognizing you wanted something you achieved that now what's the next one rather than think oh but i wanted x y and z but it didn't come when I wanted it and it didn't come at this certain point. I wanted things before. I wanted, I still want a college. I'll say it on the record. Manifesting, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to I always to say have, good things happen to people after the pod, mate. <laughs> yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to have somebody approach me and say to me, you know, in all honesty, you know, we really like your work and we'd love to have something where we can raise awareness and give you every two weeks where we have discussions. And so something which is solid, something which I know I have to submit. But at the same time, I recognise that just because I don't have that doesn't mean I'm not... I don't also have multiple other streams yeah exactly (laughs) yet doesn't then mean I'm not having success in the field in other avenues and via other streams we've come to our final topic of conversation Hamza and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time it is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health so firstly how is your mental health mate it's funny because at the moment it's up and down and I don't mean it in, this, in, a, in a way that's really debilitating mm-hmm. but in this, again in the field where I'm going through a period where if we'd done this podcast six months ago I would perhaps give you way more of an optimistic answer but I can give you now a more realistic answer mm-hmm. and I'm in a phase where perhaps things aren't going all my way but I'm also recognising that actually that's fine and so some days it's like oh, doom and gloom and other days it's like do you know what actually this is part of the process and I'm going to be a better person as a result of it so I'd say this phase in particular of, of my career has been probably the most instructive. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? The one I'd say that I do a lot is overthinking. So I overthink quite a lot. And like I said, when it could be about anything. But in, in relation to like my work and what I like to do, it could be I have submit something and it hasn't been published for two days for example even though we've had a deadline and i'm thinking oh do you not like What's the it reason for that? Yeah, yeah oh is it is it, not, is it not good enough like, you, know, you don't have closure do you yeah and it's the, the thinking and because i'm so you know i'm so i want to say ruthless but at the same time, i always want to see the next thing yes. get that done go to the next one and the next one and the do you next struggle one. to stay present when that happens yeah so it's like i start putting so many scenarios in my head what if this is the reason oh is, is that okay should i reach out should i message and then it could be other things where I haven't got a piece and I'm thinking, oh, is it because I haven't networked well enough? Is it because I've been a bit, my presence online, for example, mm-hmm. has it been, have I not done enough to reach out and, mm-hmm. and show people that I'm, I'm able to write and whatnot? Should I be pitching more? Because I went through a phase of about, about a year, I didn't pitch a single thing because people coming to me. Did complacency seep in? Did I think, oh, I've reached the pinnacle. I don't need to say anything anymore. I don't need to pitch and put myself out there. So all of those thoughts, in my mind I thought oh did I lose a year in that sense then did that, could I have spoken to other editors the overthinking is the big one the worry that comes with it and the, the stress what age were you mate when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind very recent I'd say 24, 25 okay. onwards and was it a eureka moment or was it a gradual process it was gradual it was recognising you can have bad days which won't last long and then it won't define you mm. yeah yeah that's the big one because you could have a day where you just, you know, random slump. Mm. Everything's fine. You get home and you're just like, I can't bother for anything. <laughs> and then you realise the next morning you're buzzing for life again. You've got that energy. And sometimes you need that, the feeling of the night before, to galvanise you for the following morning. And realising that that is part and parcel. It can't all be smooth. 
And that's something, it sounds so simple that I had to come to terms with. It won't always be smooth a journey. There'll be a lot of setbacks. They won't define you, but they will. They'll shape you. Yes, exactly, exactly. And can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have looking back? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big moment or weight had been lifted or on the other, something quite easy to do and normal? I think it's a combination. It was a combination of conversations with people where suddenly you felt you could speak to them. You could just say something like, oh, actually, even if it was just like you and somebody else and you thought, I didn't think I could tell you about this part of me. And then them saying, actually, no, it's fine. And then asking you to elaborate. It could be that. It could be with someone where you, it might, might be like my sister, my mum, and I, I might confide in them and think, oh, they haven't dismissed it as something stupid. I actually remember saying to my mum, it's like, oh, I haven't read anything in ages, man. There's no one wants to listen to me. She goes, yeah, but you wrote like six in like the last, like there's, there was ups <laughs> the and downs. mums have always got a PowerPoint yeah. presentation. And, it, and, yeah. and it's like one of the ones she goes, that is life. After that one, it was, I got a big one. So it was, she said, just trust the process. Just do what you got to do and somebody will notice you. And it was when you were able to just like something that was playing on my mind. I haven't been commissioned in so long. No one's recognised me. No one's you know appreciating me. And it sounds silly saying that out loud, but then expressing that to somebody and somebody not just saying, "Oh, don't be silly," and actually saying, "No, there is an opportunity. You've done well. Don't let this get you down. Recognise that it's part of the process. Appreciate you've done well, but then stick to it." What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, mate? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I don't think I've figured them out yet. A lot of them are random. Okay. So it could be, it could be anything. New cycle? <laughs> yeah, it could be just some days like feelings might overwhelm you mm-hmm. and you, you try to unpack and, and break down, okay, what's the reason? Why am I feeling like this? And then you think, ah, oh, but did I read something? Did I come across something? Sometimes it's better not to know what it was. Mm. But at the same time, there's been moments where I think, okay, if I don't go gym or if I don't, or if I overthink or if I leave things to the unknown. So I always prefer to have things in my control. We're quite similar in that respect. Yeah, so like, yeah, so then if I've, if I've done everything in my power, I've got less reasons to think, okay, maybe it's not like a job I did. If you do all you can, yeah, like, yeah. someone else gets it, cool. Yeah, so I remember like, again, bringing it back to, to work is thinking, oh, why have I not been commissioned or should I do more? And then sending multiple pictures and asking people informally and formally. And then feeling okay when it's not working. Because I'm like, okay, that's fine. I've made the effort. I've spent evenings not on Xbox and actually, you know, reading research. Okay, that's a good news hook. Let me send it to this editor. I've seen this person hasn't published anything on their website, you know, on, as a magazine or whatever for multiple months on Palestine. There's my chance. Let me get in. I've done all of that. They don't have a God-given right to commission me, of course. But they don't see it fit at that moment in time. That's fine. I've done what's in my hands. And so rather than me go to sleep thinking, oh man, again, another day, no commission, another day, not being able to break through. I go to sleep thinking, this part of the process. Mm. And conversely then, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? The big one is gym. I didn't realise, I remember seeing a quote years ago and people said, I'm, or like I think it was a TikTok or something and someone said, I'm not even here for my physical health anymore. <laughs> and I and I remember, re- and he was, I think it was someone on a treadmill and, and I, I remember thinking that, where's the correlation? Like, what, what do you You couldn't mean? see like, it. Yeah, I couldn't yeah, see it yeah. and I'd, this was me I was fairly fresh in the gym. Now, honestly, there's some days I go to the gym and I'm like, just pump the iron out of this bad day. Mm. Like, it's one of the ones where, what's your personal best? You've had a bad day. Personal best has gone up a couple, yeah, of, yeah, couple yeah, of kilos. Yeah. People don't realise. I was speaking to a friend, actually. This is how ironic it is. Speaking to a friend the other week, we got met each other in the gym. And he says, this is my this is my escape. He says, I come to the yes. gym. Phone, my phone at yeah, home. his yeah. phone's on airplane mode. He's yeah. got his speakers in. He doesn't take his phone out of his pocket once. Mm. And he said, 
you can get the good the body benefits of it you know that the exercise and everything and the nutrition and the health and all of that but then you're getting a total escape and it's only recently where i've looked at that and i don't mean it literally where i go then i think okay i now need to shut off but when you're there you have something to focus on and when you leave it just feels like you've you've got something out it's an achievement for the day yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's the biggest one and it gives you a sense of order it does get annoying sometimes like the other day i hadn't gone till thursday and every single day up until i was like oh i haven't gone haven't gone haven't <laughs> gone but having that structure having something to work towards and then you know for example oh personal best is this what am i doing on this oh chest is this so it gives you a sense of meaning of belonging the gym itself is a community mm. you go to these to the right people one, yeah, yeah <laughs> that's true don't go at 7 p.m yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just go to any of those crappy chain ones yeah 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 <laughs> What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health bible you've read for your mental health, mate? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, a album, film, any piece of popular culture. This is interesting because I made the joke to my sister yesterday before I came on the pod. She's been telling me to read a book for a long time, The Chimp Paradox. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Steve Peters. Yes. Yeah, yeah. How I knew his name, he was the club doctor at Liverpool. So I remember at the time... He's done a lot of work with big celebs. Yes. Because well, yeah, yeah. his name was popular because in 2014... They attributed, remember, under Brendan Rodgers, the, the Liverpool title charge. Everyone kept saying there was an article in the Guardian about Steve Peters and the role he had. So I, when my sister bought this book about two years ago, and she kept telling me, read this, read I said, no, what, what do you mean about managing your emotions and recognising your deficiencies and controlling yourself? I said, what do I need to know about that? And then I read it about a few months ago. I started skimming it and I started reading it from <laughs> front to back. And then I was like, this is this is interesting because it just gives you small... T- Even the way it's written mm-hmm. is in like paragraphs here and it's not like deep. It's not like a whole load for you to digest straight away. And for the listeners as well, what fiction or non-fiction book would you recommend for them to learn more about the Israel and Palestine conflict? Because it's quite a lot to go yeah, from so there's, zero. There's two that I always refer to just because of... They're very thorough. They're very... You know, they go into details and are, you know, full of evidence and it's not necessarily opinion. It's rooted in fact... So one is The Hundred Year War, which is published recently, and the other one is by Ilan Pape, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Both of those books give you a real detail because, like I said, when things happen, they're described in the media as if they happen in a vacuum. Those books will give you the indication and the insight into why we are where we are. And who's the former by? I think, what's his name? Rashid Khalidi. Okay. That's the one, yeah, Brilliant. that's the one. If there was a mantra in life, mate, that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Um, let your hopes, not your hurts. You've done your research your on future. this part. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Most people are stumped by that one. <laughs> I had that one written down, actually, yeah. Let your hopes, not your hurts, shape your future. And it's something I alluded to before. Just, you know, remember the end goal. Remember what you wanted and stick to that. I've got two questions left. The first one is, what do you love about yourself? I'd say I'm quite passionate. Mm-hmm. And I think anything you're passionate in... As Eddie Hearn says, no passion, no point. There you go. Like... <laughs> Anything I do, it can be bad and it can be good, but I wear my heart on my sleeve in anything I do. So if I have to now dive into something, I'm going to do it full throttle. Now, that means that when I'm at home watching football, I'm shouting down the house, <laughs> which is not always good, but it means when we win, it's euphoria. And when it comes Eyes to that, nose, mate. Come yeah, on, yeah. That's, that's the thing. And whereas, for example, even with the work, for example, because I'm so, I want to be able to be that voice. I want to be able to, you know, there's the ego side of it, which is I want my name to be associated with, you know, this person's a good journalist, etc. But there's also, you know, painting the picture. Voice of the voiceless. A voice of the mm-hmm. voiceless, all of that. Because I go in that with 100%. So I don't leave any stone unturned, which I think is a good thing in the sense, like I said, a bit of clarity, a bit of closure. When something doesn't go your way, you can think, you know what, I've done in my power what I could. 
And as a final question, mate, this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all faiths, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? First thing is break the taboo. And that could mean, look, we all know how it is in circles, with, for example, just male circles. And it is, it is changing, but we're talking historically the taboo of mental health. Once you break that, and also within your families, like not to dismiss and just to be open about it. And not being, no shame. Shame is the big one. If there's no shame and we strip away kind of the, the negative label associated with anything with a mental health struggle, that is the first step. And the sense of community that we need, the camaraderie, helping one another. Brotherhood, mate. Yeah. yeah if, you have, if you have someone you can lean on, someone you can, you can offer, it could be a breakup, it could be just something silly, work, unemployment, anything that's plaguing someone or, you know, impacting their mental stability and resilience. Then I think being there for each other, being able to speak openly and freely, and not being ashamed of you're undergoing something, it's just part and parcel. Those are the major necessary steps, I think. Hamza Ali Shah, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking podcast and talking to me, brother. Pleasure to be here, honestly. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Hamza for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him about Palestine, grief and his journalism journey. I will put links to where you can read the article we discussed in full and where you can follow him on social media in the show notes as always. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying please give this podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Or you can go to our Patreon and support us. That's www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk, all one word. Or you can go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash eventshelpuk if you want to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>